are now listening to Vibe Selection with Kyra, where you can get the real on today's hot topics. Well, welcome everybody, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Vibe Selection. I am your host, Kyra, and on today's episode, I have joining me Jamie Tietro joining me today, who is a business trademark and copyright attorney who helps small business entities set up their businesses. So I have her joining me today to give some legal advice on how to start an LLC, uh, how to start a trademark and a copyright, how to maintain them, and the legality that come with having an LLC trademark and a copyright. So thank you so much for joining me today, Miss Jamie. How are you doing? I am very well, Miss Kyra. I do want to just thank you for having me on your show today. Uh, I'm very happy to inform your listeners on some of the legal operations of their business, you know, because a lot of startups and entrepreneurs have largely ignored this part of their business. So I'm happy to, you know, try to open up and set the stage on how they can, you know, start setting up their entity. Yes. Well, I'm excited for having you on. I know, like you said, there's just so many people that overlook this important part in this aspect. And there's a lot of people that want to start up businesses, but don't really know how to go about it in the, the legal way of doing things. So definitely having you on today will be very informing for my listeners. And I appreciate that. But this is also your first time doing a podcast. So everybody can get familiar with you. Tell me a little bit about your background and how you actually got started in law. Yes. So I, this is actually my second career. My first career, I started after college as an, a law enforcement officer. So I was a deputy down in Texas for eight years. And then a lot of politics come into play there. Uh, So I started thinking about other careers and things to get into. Um, And I figured since I've already have this kind of legal background, that it would be better for me to kind of stick to what I know. Um, And then also, you know, me kind of getting mad at the system and Mm -hmm. the frustrations of how to even file lawsuits kind of like, all right, you know, this isn't working, that's not working. So, you know, getting the the legal training that I needed really helped me. So I would like to just send forth whatever knowledge that I've received onto others and help them navigate through the legal system as well as, you know, protecting themselves against any type of lawsuits or anything like that. So for me, it was just kind of uh, 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 just choosing a new career to do something because I'm, I'm not going to be able to chase after 19 year olds when I'm like <laughs> 50, you know, so exactly. That's <laughs> the way the body down. Safer. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. So that's where, you know, that kind of came in. <laughs> Yeah, that's wonderful. So how long did it take you to actually graduate from law school and set up your business and your law, your law firm? Yeah, so I graduated from law school. Well, law school takes three years. I had graduated in undergrad in criminal justice, which is the reason why I went into law enforcement. And so Combined with the undergrad and the law school, it's about seven years. It's three years of law school for undergrad. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that was actually rather quickly then. 
Because I feel like when people think of law school, it's like you take like 10 years, 15 years in order to actually become graduate from law school. So yours seemed like it was pretty quick and excelled, which is awesome. Yeah. But I mean, I was also a lot older than, you know, my classmates because some of them just went straight into law school from their oh. undergrad. So God. me, I had eight years under my belt doing something else and then that gap um, in schooling. So it, it was kind of like starting over for me. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the first year is definitely rough, <laughs> mm-hmm. but you know, once you make it through the first year, the next two are, they, they get better. I can't say easier, but they do get better. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. I want to get into LLC. So tell me what are the steps that a small business or a startup needs to take in order to get an LLC going? And what exactly is an LLC for those that are not actually too familiar with the term? I do know that a lot of people kind of throw that term around, but there's a lot of people that don't really truly know what an LLC is and how to maintain it. So can you give us a little background? into that? Yes, I'm so glad that you asked this question because one of the very first decisions that a founder has to make is what legal form to operate as their business. So because founders often start businesses without consulting lawyers, they tend to incur higher taxes and become subject to significant liabilities that could have been avoided. So had they structured their business as a corporation or an LLC, which is a limited liability partnerships, they they could have avoided some of these pitfalls there. Um, But an LLC isn't the only way that a founder can uh, set up an entity. So, you know, you have the sole proprietorships, the general partnerships, uh, the C and S corporations, as well as the partnership. So an LLC is it stands for limited liability corporation. So it's formed under your state law. Mm-hmm. It's like a hybrid form of a corporation and a limited partnership. So there's certain tax advantage advantages that an LLC has over like an, a C corporation, for instance. And there's more protections, limited liability protection to the owners in keeping up with the corporate form. So it also provides um different tax benefits as it's similar to that of an S corporation um, where you're, if you're bringing on any type of venture capital investors or or at some point, then this would be a way for you to get that head start. Um, Because if you're operating as a sole proprietor, you know, and you want to bring on a partner later on, there's no way for you to really go about uh, changing that structure. You would have to start your business all over again, and that could be more expensive. So um, in forming an LLC, you pretty much just go online to your local secretary of state's office and um, fill out a form and you pay the fees. And also with an LLC, most states require you to have an operating agreement with that. Um, And the operating agreement pretty much just tells um, the, anyone that's looking into your business, how it's, how, um, 
your businesses to be run and managed and, you know, how the membership distributions go, if there's multiple members or if you're a single member LLC, you, it's not required, but it would be something that you should also have because it can help with that separation of your personal liability and your business liability. Mm, okay. So um, in a 50-50 partnership, I do know that you can have multiple people in on the partnership, but I know you just mentioned that when it comes to an LLC, it's only one person. So what happens if someone wants to create an LLC with quite a few people, they're not able to actually add anybody on or have multiple people as the head over the LLC? Yeah, so an LLC is great to have if there's more than one member. That's generally who uses the LLCs because each limited partner mm -hmm. is is protected. Um, a single member LLC is one individual. And so you get the same protections as you would if you do have other partners around mm -hmm. as part of the entity. Mm -hmm. um, the, the difference is that you're just operating on a solo basis and you're treated differently for IRS purposes. You're treated as a what they call a disregarded entity. So you would have to file your taxes under the sole proprietorship. As, and then if you're working with partners, then you, you're able to file your taxes separately as opposed to as you would as an individual with that personal liability. Got it. So I that see, makes sense to you. Yes, it does. Very okay. Clear. So um, I know I've seen I've been seeing online where you have these online sites that are like legal sites where they say that they can help you set up an LLC. Would you recommend those type of sites or do you feel like people should go into an actual law office and actually get in touch with an attorney to help them with the process? Yeah, you know, that is a question that I get a lot um, because a lot of startups don't generally have that initial capital where they can uh, go ahead and seek legal advice straight off the bat. So they they go to these websites that offer them cheaper pricing and, and the like. However, they don't really get the entire, um, I would say, knowledge about what's best for them and their company um, and the, the formation of their companies. So I, I mean, of course I'm an attorney, so I would say, <laughs> you know, go ahead and talk to a legal professional in your area that specializes in business law. But if you are on a budget and if it's just to help you as far as your operating agreements, I, I mean, if if you and your partners, I think that's something that you and your partners should do together with an attorney because they'd be able to help you understand, well, what happens if me and my partners are in a rift? Mm -hmm. You know, that's something that your basic online service company isn't going to be able to help you with. So I feel like mm -hmm. an attorney is going to personalize your operating agreement more to you. But as far as just going online, you, it's it's pretty self-explanatory for you to just go online to your local secretary of state's office and 
form your LLC, which, you know, entails you um, in picking out a name and just filling out who the registered agent is and just plug in, in, in that basic information for your state. So generally, I would say you don't need to have an attorney to go online and file your LLC. But if you if your state requires you to have an operating agreement when you file the LLC, then I would recommend you speaking with a legal professional and a, a tax professional in your area. So that way you can weigh the pros and cons of um being involved as an LLC, as well as how your business is to operate if in the unfortunate event that one of the partners dies or becomes incapacitated or whether, you know, you guys don't agree on how to spend money mm-hmm. or, you know, anything like that can come up and the attorney will have, you know, these different questions for you and your partners in order to tailor that for you. Yeah. So what happens if you don't have all of those, you know, instances in your operating agreement? What would be the next step to happen in that situation? Let, For example, let's just say that you and your partner break up and in the operating agreement, you didn't have um, anything covered on what to do if you guys broke up. What would be a what would be a situation that would happen there? Would it go into litigation? Yeah, so. It could go into litigation if you guys are fighting over whether to keep the company open and who is going to be the owner of the company, or it would fall under the state's law in dissolution and it would still have to go through litigation and the judge would then, you know, say you guys need to dissolve this company, which includes, you know, like paying off the business debts and making sure that all that sort of stuff is taken care of and the business would then be no more. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it could be an agreement between the two of you. If one is like, no, I'm just going to walk away or I'll pay you, or I'll buy you out, you know, so you can just leave. So you can kind of negotiate with your partner and see what they want to do. That you would also um, inform the Secretary of State that, you know, this is now, um, these are now the members of the LLC and this rem- member has been removed. And so you would have to inform the state on that. But it's definitely something that you can discuss with the other partners on how to go about it and whether to dissolve the company or not. Okay. So at any time you can pretty much just dissolve the company. Let's just say there was no dispute with the partner and you just decided, you know what, I I don't, I no longer want this business. You're able to just disbar it. Correct. Uh, as long as you pay all of your business creditors, mm-hmm. well, yeah, <laughs> um, you know, there's, there's no reason why you wouldn't be able to discontinue the business and wind it down. Okay. So what should be placed in an operating agreement for an LLC exactly? Yeah. So if there are multiple members, um, it's important for you to have their their roles, because that's where a lot of people tend to bump heads or partners, I should say, bump heads, is 
if they're 50 50 and if there's only two and if it's everything is 50 50 and they're talking about you know well i want to spend money on this lawnmower and the other partner is like no that's too much money let's you know spend the money more on this because we don't need the lawnmower um so in in that case you would in your operating agreement because this is where you it should be the bible for lack of better terminology (laughs) of your business you always go to it you always reference it for everything so when you're initially starting out it's important for you to clearly state who is in charge of doing what and what part of the day-to-day operations there should be in there uh, like if there's a tie, what the tiebreaker would be. Would it be a flip of a coin, you know, or would it be some type of compromise? Um, You know, would you go to a third party? Would you go, you know, see uh, someone who is also in the business, like another employee or something of the business and try to get that tiebreaker done? you know, just different scenarios that could happen, but it's pretty much an internal document on how to run the business, who manages it, um, membership distribution, you know, if the business um, gives out dividends at the end of the year or the quarter, you know, what's that percentage? Also in there, you would have who put in how much, uh, percentage-wise, uh, as far as the business goes, um, and that could also determine their percentage of ownership in the business. Um, so it it just helps to uphold the limited liability protection too in a single member LLC. So keeping that person separate from the LLC. So a single member would also have that in place, even though they're working by themselves and they're like a hundred percent owner of the business, you know, you, you would still have some type of layout on how you operate your business so that the courts in the event of a lawsuit can see that, Hey, this business is separate from this person, um, of the member of that business. So they don't, uh, so they're not able to go after you personally and attack your personal assets. Yes, that would be tragic, honey. You have to get up, give up your whole house, your cars, your jewelry, yes. everything. <laughs> yeah, and, that, and that's, so, that, that's also another reason why I recommend to my clients to get some type of business insurance. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's something that a lot of, business owners don't have. I mean, even if it's just like a, a errors and omissions kind of, or just a blanket type of liability protection, mm-hmm. that could go a long way in, mm-hmm. in saving you and your business, you yes. know? So you don't lose everything and, and you're limited to whatever that insurance covers. So mm-hmm. I think that's something that your listeners should look into as well. Yes, people, protect yourself, protect yourself, protect yourself. Hire an attorney. Do whatever you got to do. Pawn some jewelry if you can't afford it. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, it's important. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so I know that a lot of states, um, when you're sell- setting up the contract, the agreement, operating agreements, they usually have, uh, they usually want you to assign managers for these agreements. But do all do some states also allow non-managers to enter into the enter into these contractual agreements on behalf of the LLCs? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there is what's called a member managed LLC or a manager managed LLC. <laughs> So the difference between a member managed LLC means that all members are going to be taking part in the management of and the operation of the business. So people who are owners in an LLC are called the members An LLC can have one member or multiple members who own the company and all of them have an equal vote to determine a majority of opinion and make decisions. In contrast, a manager managed LLC would appoint a decision maker, the the person who is going to be making all of the decisions for the business. Um, so you can have a few members in your LLC and say about three and maybe two of them just want to be financial inve- uh, investors and the other one wants to be appointed as a manager to run the operation. So that one person would manage the day-to-day operations of the business. So that's why it's super important to indicate in your operating agreement how your LLC is to be managed, or you're going to just default to the member managed LLC. So um, it that's important to note because the operating agreement outlines how your business is run, the division of the responsibilities, and how profits are shared between the members. So what what would happen in this situation? I mean, what would be like a a downside to having someone that's a non-manager going into an operating agreement like that? What are some of the pitfalls that um, someone that is the head over the LLC could be running into? Yeah, so... That's, you know, that's why the operating agreement, again, is super important um, to prevent that from happening, because you can open up your business for potential liability, especially if you're entering into certain contracts with vendors and banks and and the like. Um, You would then make everyone in the, the LLC liable for whatever it is that you're doing out there, if you're signing checks, if you you're entering into these contracts as a uh, as a member of the LLC and not a manager when you don't have that that um, that right to do so in the LLC, mm-hmm. as far as the operating agreement goes, they're still going to be held liable under the terms and agreement of those contracts and held liable for any checks that are cashed. Okay. So, um, I know that, um, having an LLC, it, they say that it's really good for your credit score, right? I've not heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> We're debunking these things, people. Yeah, <laughs> some of so, them. <laughs> an LLC. I mean, the way that I would see it working as helping out your credit score would probably 
only be if you're trying to get some type of business credit mm-hmm. um, with a bank or something like that. If you're a single member LLC, you know, you're the personal guarantee on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I don't know of many banks that are really willing to give out loans to startup LLCs or startup mm-hmm. companies. Um but if there are, I mean, you may just have to, to get it like a personal loan and then use it for your business stuff. But I've, I've not heard of an LLC helping you with your credit. No. Oh, man. So it can't take that 620 to 840? Oh. <laughs> I wish, <Darn>. right? <laughs> I think everybody in the country then would just start filing I mean, LLCs. <laughs> definitely. Shoot, I know I was on my way down there to an attorney's office to start filing and get my LLC going. <laughs> so yeah. when should someone decide if they want to have an LLC? So I know you do startups and small businesses, but should big businesses start an LLC or like like even me as a podcaster, would you recommend podcasters to start an LLC? Yeah. So I would recommend that anyone who is thinking about starting a business um, think about forming an LLC. It's it's definitely one of the popular legal entities to form out there just because of that liability protection. Um, like I said earlier, I I wouldn't recommend, you know, a startup being a sole proprietorship, but companies companies are, I guess, would be set up as uh, corporations like C corporations and generally the startups that are um, that I see go with a with a C corporation are um, are uh, computer and information systems kind of startups that go with the C corporations because mm-hmm. they require venture capital in order to grow that business there. Um, but definitely starting out, um, if you don't have anything else and you, you don't want to operate under your own name as a sole proprietor or a DBA doing mm-hmm. business as, um, then yeah, I mean, in the beginnings of your business, definitely it's important to get that started in, in the first steps of uh, forming your entity. Yeah. So I want to get on to kind of the tax side of having an LLC. So um, when you're doing your taxes, I understand that there is for a lot of most states that you have to pay a fee, um, a yearly fee to uphold and maintain your actual LLC. So can you give us a little bit more background into what go, how you should file if you have an LLC and how much it actually costs to maintain your LLC status? Yeah. So I'm not a tax attorney or tax advisor, um, (laughs) but I do know that the cost of keeping your LLC is dependent on the state that it's filed in. So I know in Massachusetts, where I am, filing for an LLC is $500. -hmm. But in, say, Colorado, filing an LLC is only 50 bucks, Mm -hmm. you know. So there's a huge range there. and And a lot of states do require you and an annual renewal of your business if it's still in operation. Mm -hmm. So you would have to pay that 
say $500 every year uh, on the anniversary of the date that you started the LLC. But like I said, it varies from state to state and jurisdiction. So it could be a lot cheaper. I think in New Jersey, maybe 150 bucks or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as far as the taxes go, um, I, I couldn't really speak on that. That's something that's out of my wheelhouse. Understood. I know you're not TurboTax or anything like that. <laughs> but I'm sure these questions do arise when you are dealing with clients that come in and that are maybe seeking some advice on like what would be the the, the way to file their taxes. Because I know that's an important aspect too. Because you know, when you own a business, you got to make sure you pay Uncle Sam, honey. They want all their money. Exactly. So. <laughs> it, it would, it, you would have to file a separate, a Schedule C uh, under your under your IRS filings. That's how that's pretty much the extent of what I know. I hire people that know more than I do to do my taxes. So that's pretty much what I know. (laughs) (laughs) And I also know that a lot of LLCs, they have to have corporate record books, which pretty much entails how they pay themselves or how they pay their employees and other forms of operation too. Is that true? That would you recommend all people that do decide they want to have an LLC to have a corporate record book to maintain their finances. Super important. Um, Not necessarily like a record book of, you know, keeping the minutes and stuff like that, but definitely having a separate bank account. That is so huge, Kyra. Let me tell you, because the minute that you co-mingle your personal assets with your business assets, you may not think that it's a big deal. Oh, um, let me just use the business credit card to, you know, buy, pay for gas today. It's not Mm. that big of a deal, but if in the event that you get sued and the court see that you've used your business account for something personal when you know your your business doesn't require you to drive around or pay for gas for you know lawn mowing equipment or something like that mm. then that's called what that's what we call piercing the corporate veil Mm-hmm. Meaning that they're able to pass through the legal entity and get to you personally. So then you, you're exposing yourself to personal liability. And that's where you can lose your house. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely having a separate bank account, keeping everything separate is super, super important. Um, and, and generally, when you file, for an LLC, you know, one thing that you should do is get that EIN number from the IRS. It's simple. Just go to the irs.gov website and apply for the EIN. It's free. Um, and or you can just fax it in or print it out. However, it's more convenient for you. But when you get that EIN, it allows you to get because that's something that the banks really require if you want to have a business bank account. So mm-hmm. you get that EIN to get that to make sure that everything is separated. Um, so that way, you know that the EIN is associated with that bank account and then your personal account is kept separate. Yeah, that would be tragic. You know, getting all your money taken by the government and you sleeping on the streets, being homeless because you didn't comb all areas. Yes. <laughs> it's important, yes. people. Make sure you comb all areas and be very detailed with everything. So what would you say are some of the pros and cons of actually having an LLC? 
Oh, well, one of the biggest pros is just protecting yourself and and your personal self, um, as well as your business. You know, it helps with um, getting your um, protecting your business against creditors and stuff like that. So it gives you, you know, most of that kind of protection. Um, Mm -hmm. But a, a con, I would say, of an LLC would probably be if you plan on bringing in any type of venture capital investors at some point, mm-hmm. you know, you it's best to avoid starting the company as an LLC because it generally uh, investors can't um, invest in pass-through entities, which is what an LLC is, um, meaning that the company does not pay income taxes, but rather uh, profit and losses are passed through and it's divided among the stockholders or the members of the LLC. But um, yeah, if you're planning on being a startup and getting some type of venture capital, then it it wouldn't work for you. Um, But if you already, if you don't need any capitals and don't want to bring in any partners, then Mm -hmm. go you know, partners that are going to bring in money, mm-hmm. then, you know, go ahead and and do your LLC. Yeah. So what would you say are some of the common mistakes people make when starting an LLC, whether they're a startup or a small business or even a little podcaster like myself? What would you say people go wrong when it comes to starting their LLCs? Okay. So there, there are a few mistakes let me see (laughs) you always get the laundry list going (laughs) (laughs) yeah um so let me see one of the recent ones that i had um is where a, a a founder came to me and um with an issue with her business logo anyway and so what she didn't do is do the research to make sure that her LLC name was one that was available to her Mm. and not one that was registered Uh -uh. by somebody else. (laughs) So, Uh um, one, so that would be one mistake is just, um, picking a name without doing the research to help avoid making, you know, any type of trademark infringement or domain name problems um, come to your way. So (laughs) you want to just ensure that you choose a name that's actually available to use, or, you know, you may be finding yourself infringing on somebody else's trademark. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Oh man. So, uh, what would, so what happened in that situation? Did she have to go before a judge? Like, was she getting sued for that or did she have to just take the, um, does she have to just dissolve the name that she wanted to use or that she did use rather? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's still pending. Um, right now the person just sent her a letter saying, hey, you're using my handle, you're using my name, Uh you know, you better stop. But it wasn't a cease and desist letter. But I think that this is like a cheaper step for her than getting that cease and desist because, you know, some attorneys that um, are representing 
the owners of the trademarks have charged about $30,000 a day until the infringer stops using that name or that logo or that tagline. So it could be pretty, pretty expensive. So right now, I think that we're okay. We're able to get things taken down. And and that's another thing, you know, you have to rebrand yourself and start all over again. And that's can be even more expensive than just hiring an attorney right off of the bat. Yes, absolutely. So y'all better comb through that database and make sure those names are available. You don't want to end up in a situation like that. So, okay, tell me, since we're talking about it, what is the difference between a trademark and a copyright? Right. So a trademark protects any type of names and logos and taglines, whereas a copyright protects any type of creative works, literary works, um, things that are original. So this podcast that you're recording today could be copyrighted because it's an original work and it's not something that is, you know, that has a brand to it, mm-hmm. um, but it, it is considered um, to be a copyright. Okay, so where do you go to actually look up the status and make sure that the name isn't taken for a, a trademark that you want to file or to make sure that you're not stealing any type of intellectual pop- property? Yeah. So when you're looking for a name or choosing a name, you know, it's not just looking at the name as it is. So if you want to be, let's say, um, uh, what's something I can think of? Okay, so here's one. Um, let's say ABC Corporation, super basic, I know. So if you're looking up ABC Corporation, you can go to Google, you can go to GoDaddy, um, you can check Facebook, uh, the Instagram handles or, or, you know, Twitter and make sure that ABC um, company is available. Mm-hmm. However, uh, you, the most important place that you can go and you should go would be on the United States Patent and Trademark Office, which is mm-hmm. USPTO.gov. Because that's where the registrations are and they'll show you the owners of that name and mm-hmm. if it's available. And so a lot of clients that come to me are like, well, nobody else has Jasmine Designs Jewelers uh, uh, on on the website, you know, in the web that I see. But the thing is, maybe Jasmine is spelled differently or Mm. designs is spelled differently. So it's, and even if that's the case, you still wouldn't be able to use that name because it creates some kind of confusion with the consumers. So Mm. anything that could potentially confuse consumers on the source of the product where it's coming from the trademark where it's coming from then you know that that would be a claim for an infringement so the the customers are really what's important when it comes to trademarks mm-hmm. is to make sure that they're not confused and and getting 
you know, what they think they're getting from Jasmine, but they're getting it from Jasmine, mm. you know. So, <laughs> the bootleg <laughs> version. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, there, there's different, you know, um, names to, to go by, but also, you know, some people are like, well, you know, here, here's, a clear one that you may know, like Dove and Dove. Mm -hmm. So Dove ice cream versus Dove soaps. Mm -hmm. Um, So the reason why they're allowed to have the same name is because they serve two separate audiences. One Mm -hmm. is clearly for food and ice creams. And so they're able to register it under that class. And then the other one clearly you know, services, body lotions, deodorant, um, and, and shampoos. So they're able to have it under those classifications. And so food and personal hygiene items, they don't really mix at all. So Mm -hmm. people are able to different, differentiate the two. Oh, man. You know what? I was today years old when I just found out that Dove does not also create ice cream because I thought it was the same logo. (laughs) I'm like, what? I thought they were the same one. I thought they just branched off and decided to expand their brand and go into ice cream. (laughs) Yeah, they are two separate companies. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I've been bamboozled. (laughs) You That's see, so and that, that creates that confusion, but it's just because they're they're two s- selling two different products and not in the same class, which is what the the trademark office calls, you know, the type of products and services that you're selling. Is mm-hmm. it could be, is it are you selling apparel? Are you selling food? Are you selling um hygiene products like everything that you're selling because there's like 41 different classes to choose from so that's another thing that um your listeners may want to you know reach out to a trademark attorney to help them with if that's something that they're looking into because it is pretty complex it's not you know as easy as you think oh i'll just you know fill out this application and you know, this trademark is going to be sent off and I'll get it back in, you know, two months and be fine. No, it's a long process and it definitely doesn't take two months. Um, And it does go through a a vigorous process. And also you have the USPTO publishes it in the Federal Register to make sure that there aren't any uh, oppositions to the name that you chose or somebody else that's using it you know, can come and oppose and say, hey, you know, I've been using this name for, you know, this many years longer or whatever, this person is actually using my name. Mm -hmm. So it is a a long process to get a trademark approved. Can you really just quickly tell us what a few of the classes are when it comes to filing a copyright or a trademark, what they would actually be? Yeah, so um, let's see. Um, you have, like I said, apparel um, that that's something you know you selling hats. Um, another one would be uh, if you're selling wallets. Um, if you're selling food, you know they're just determinable on the you know 
on the scale of where it is or the product that you have that you're wanting to sell. And sometimes your product can fall into two separate classes. Mm-hmm. Um, so say hats and belts um, can also fall under, you know, apparels and t-shirts. So sometimes you may have to spend the money to mm-hmm. register under more than one class. It is super expensive. I'm not going to lie. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is important because uh, trademark is a huge asset to a business. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if your brand is recognizable, that's huge. You know, like Nike, everybody knows Nike. Everybody mm-hmm. knows the swoosh symbol, mm-hmm. you know, Everybody yeah. knows what just do it is associated with. Exactly. So Nike actually owns more or their their brand is worth more than the products that they sell. Mm-hmm. So what are a few more of the steps um, that would happen after someone files for um, a trademark or a copyright? So I know that you said it's kind of a, a long process, but after you file it, um, would it then take a couple months for them to review it and make sure that, you know, you can actually use the name? And then what would happen from there? So with regard to the steps in filing a trademark application, so the important thing to remember is that before you even begin your application, you want to check out to see whether the names or names that you have chosen is not one that is same or sounds similar to one that is already out there in use. And you can do this by doing a Google search uh, or godaddy.com for the domain name, um, also using the USPTO's website website using their test system, which is their trademark electronic search system, just to make sure that there aren't any live uses of that name that has been registered. Um, So you can also search, you know, other areas like social media, like Facebook and Twitter handles to make sure that somebody else also doesn't have the same name. Um, There are some companies out there that will do this search for you. um, And that's pretty much the extent of it. So if you are having trouble interpreting the list that you receive and you're on the fence as to whether you're able to use the name or not, then you should get into contact with an attorney or someone who is literate on the matter um, so that they can give you that clear, definitive answer as to whether your trademark would work or would not work. So, I mean, I'm all for DIYs, but sometimes it is important to bring on someone who is more of an expert on the matter. Now, after you check for the name being available, you'll want to choose what class your business falls under. Now, there are currently 45 different classes, and so it will depend on whether you are providing a service or if you're selling products. And to find out what class your business falls under, you can go to the USPTO's website and look it up in their ID manual. Then there's going to be a chart that pops up once you put in the service like clothing or something, um, there'll be a description of what clothing and then the class will be there on the far left-hand side. So 
Now that you have your name and what class your business falls under and a description of what your business does, you'll then want to file your electronic application. There are several application types and they do range in price. So you want to read up on which application fits your specific needs and then follow the prompts. So submit your specimen, your class code, the description of your your business dealings. um, And then after that, you will have to assign your filing basis. And that is how you are using your mark. So under a section 1A, you will, that means that you are already using your mark in commerce under a section 1B filing. That is a statement that you have not yet started using your mark in commerce, but that you have a bona fide intent to use it eventually. And there is a timeline for when you have to actually start using your mark in commerce. And that's pretty much it. So once you have submitted your application, you will receive a confirmation email and the USPTO will assign an attorney to do their own due diligence and check the databases for you. Um, The only mail that you should be receiving from the USPTO is through the electronic communications and it's going to be by the attorney that is assigned to your case because there are some scamming companies out there that will send you mail requesting money from you in order to move your application forward. It's going to look super legit as far as them having the citation number of your filing as well as other information that you provided on your application, but just disregard the and don't respond to them. But you do want to be patient because this process does take a long time and it could take months and months. So just be sure that you always do respond to any emails that you receive from the USPTO because a response to them is really time sensitive and they will reject your application if you do not respond in a timely matter. There are some scammers out there, so be aware. Yeah. The USPTO only contacts you for any type of uh, office actions or anything like that mm-hmm. um, through email, the email that you have provided to them. And it will be um, with a USPTO.gov email address coming from them. Got it. Yeah. So thank just- you. Keep on it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for that advice. I had no idea that they were trying to scam people for their trademarks. I mean, I always get scam calls and stuff like that. Like, oh, you better give us money right now. We're going to put you in jail. It's like, what? You got a warrant out for your rest. Oh, <laughs> my goodness. Yes, they do do that. Very don't crafty. I'm like, oh, my gosh. What, what do I do? <laughs> this person is saying that. Oh, my gosh. I'm involved in what? Exactly. You know, I'm not they, involved. They do try to scare you. <laughs> scare people. And it's yeah. sad because so many people actually fall for it, too. You know? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that's why I want to bring that to your attention. It's Thank like, you. you know, everybody is always trying to make money. And there's some people that are super unscrupulous out there. So mm-hmm. definitely keep your eyes open. And, you know, I know everybody's excited about getting their trademarks done and, and having that asset. So, mm-hmm. you know, they're like, oh, my gosh, they see this and they're like, well, what do I have to do to make this right so that my name is protected? Mm-hmm. And they'll just kind of go and follow along that way. But, you know, just 
If you have any questions, when in doubt, contact the attorney on your case and make sure that, you know, they didn't send anything to you. But, you know, if anything comes through the mail, it's not if it's not your registration certificate, then it's not from the USPTO. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that knowledge. So I want to go into, um, should you file, could you, is it, would you recommend people to file their own trademarks and copyrights? Or do you feel like it's better off to just go with an attorney? Or I know we were talking a little bit earlier about how they have these um, online sites where they say you can file trademarks or copyrights through them that that can help you with the legal process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there are some websites out there that will provide you with like a name search or something like that. But what I find is that when they get the information, the person that requested it doesn't know how to read it. So they wouldn't really know, like, well, they'll get the list and they're like, so can I use this name? or can I not, you know, so it's a little bit confusing for them. Um, Also, I met um, a young lady the other day who's in the bridal business. And she's like, I I tried to navigate this, this trademark system on my own. And I had no idea how complex it is. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, yeah, you know, it's really not that simple. And um, like I said earlier, you know, a lot of people just say, you know, oh, I can do this on my own and just plug in all the information that they're asking me, you know, and sometimes it's like a shot in the dark and it may work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and other times you may get a couple of office actions that you just don't see or that you just don't respond to. And then whatever you applied for becomes abandoned or um, they, they won't register it. Mm-hmm. But your the USPTO also does not give refunds. So mm. if you're spending $350 for one application for one class, mm-hmm. you know, you want you don't want to lose out on that. You want to make sure that that's right, especially if you're in startup and you know that capital doesn't come easy to you. Mm-hmm. Um so, you know, $350 for one application could be expensive, plus attorney fees or whatever for to have an attorney do it for you. But mm-hmm. if you want it done right, then do it right the first time. And I think that hiring an attorney would probably be best um, because the, you can you also get that monitoring to make sure that nobody else is using your stuff. And so you get that ongoing monitoring from the the firm that you choose some firms anyway, I can't say all. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, with the online companies, they're Mm -hmm. just going to file it for you. And that's the end of that. So you don't really know if, unless you're doing your own checking, you know, every month or every three months to see if anybody else is using your name or infringing on your copy or, or your trademark, excuse me, then, you know, they don't do that for you. So um, I, I would definitely suggest talking with a licensed uh, attorney. And then if you're outside of the U.S. and you happen to be listening, um, (laughs) if you are a foreign domiciled individual, then you do have to hire a U.S.-based attorney to file that trademark for you. If you are a U.S. citizen, you do not need an attorney. But if you are outside the U.S., I 
thought I would throw that out there. Yeah. You need one because I'm, I'm sure that your podcast gets listened to all over the world. Yes, it does. Yes. All so right. For all of my outside listeners, please take the <laughs> advice. But why is that? Because the legalities in some of these countries are differ from the U.S. And that's why you need to have an actual U.S. Um, attorney help you with the process. Well, it. it it's just the way that the USPTO works. Um, mm-hmm. I do know um, that it is because of the laws mm-hmm. in the US, because even if you try to file your US-based registered trademark in other countries, some other countries require you to have you know, that country attorney uh, do that for you as well, or some type of third party company in that country that specializes in that to do it for you. Mm-hmm. So it, it really has to do with the individual country itself and what they are, um, what they are requiring in order to make sure that it's done correctly. Maybe mm-hmm. uh, I'm not really sure, but that's just the way that the USPTO does it here in the U.S. I see. So how much is it typically um, to file for a trademark and copyright? I do understand that it it differs depending on the state, but what kind of is the range that it starts off at? So currently right now for trademark, an application for one class is $350. Yeah. (laughs) So Making sure that's what I'm saying, you want to narrow down your product or service as much as you can and mm-hmm. stay in the realm of that as is what you put your application so mm-hmm. that the this is where the office action can come into play. It's like, hey, you only filed for one class, but you're selling this too, and this is under another class. So you have to refile with this class as well and pay the extra filing fee and also pay the office action fees. Oh, so (laughs) yeah. So (laughs) up front, you want to make sure that you have everything taken care of and you know exactly what products you're selling, you know, products more than one, if it's more than one and what it falls under. Cause people are like, well, it's just a logo and I'll you know, sew it onto a hat and I'll sew it onto a pocketbook and it's fine. It's just the logo. But if you're selling it, you need to make sure that you're selling it in the right classes. So you have to file that separately. So that's $350 a class for trademarks. Copyrights, on the other hand, is a lot cheaper. Um, If you're just you know, doing a basic document that, you know, like one that I have for your listeners, if they go on to my website, um, there's a free download that they can get on the steps that they they can use to protect their business there. Perfect. Um, so that document there, it's $40 to copyright that document. You know, so Mm -hmm. it's a lot cheaper to go that route. And like I said, it's for protecting your literary works, books, songs, originals anyway, um, original podcasts. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, it depends on what it is that you're trying to copyright, how many things you're copywriting, if it's more than one, like a series, you know, so it could 
brains a little bit higher in the few hundred dollars mm-hmm. uh, range too. So but something yeah. small as one document or one song, maybe 40 bucks, but a series with a few hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. So I know that, like, for example, if I decided that I wanted to copyright my podcast in each episode, I would actually have to register each episode individually and then pay the fee for that. Is that right? Is that correct? No, you wouldn't have to register them separately. You can file under one application and have it in the series. I think that the copyright office just opened it for, um, I believe it's 10, 10 series in mm-hmm. one application. So you would be able to oh. do it like that into one. Oh, that's convenient. That makes life a lot better. I was talking to someone and they were saying like in their process, they had to copyright each individual literary work like it it was a long series of things. And so they were like, you had to do it one by one. So that clarifies everything for me. Thank you. See, that's why I have you on today. Uh (laughs) It's perfect. (laughs) So what process would the trademark or copyright holder have to go through if they find out that their intellectual property is being infringed? upon would it automatically go into litigation what is the course of action that would have to be uh, taken in a situation like this Yeah, so the best way to protect against a trademark infringer is obviously to trademark your name before you release it to the public. And so the protection that we get for trademark comes from the Federal Lanham Act, and that really provides the civil causes of action and the remedies for trademark infringement and dilution claims. So generally, in order for you as a mark owner to prove that an infringement has occurred um, under the Lanham Act, you would have to show that you are the owner of a valid and legally protectable mark, meaning that your trademark has been registered with the USPTO, that the infringer has made unauthorized use of the mark in commerce in connection with the distribution, the sale, or the advertising of your good or your service, the type of service that you provide. And three, that the infringer's use is likely to cause consumer confusion. And that's generally the element that the courts tend to harp on the most is that likelihood of consumer confusion, because that's really the whole reason why trademark law came about is to protect the consumer. And some of the remedies include uh, like a preliminary injunctive relief. You have affirmative relief, which is really the destruction of the infringing articles. You have um, 
also monetary relief, which includes profits, any actual damages, attorney's fees, and the like. So of these remedies that the owner would like, the most important to to them is generally the injunctive relief. And the federal courts, they can issue both a preliminary and a permanent injunction to stop the infringing or the diluting activity that's been going on with the mark. So the injunctive relief really is the most important remedy for uh, the the owner of the mark. And so the thing about copyright infringement claims is that the good thing about it anyway is that the moment that you create your logo or your photograph that you may have just taken, um, any type of literary works or the music that you've put together, you have a what's called a common law right of protection. So common law would protect that. But it's not it doesn't give you like ultimate protection as it would if you would have registered it. But there are three different ways of filing for a copyright infringement. So you can have a direct infringement claim, a secondary infringement claim, and then there's a criminal infringement claim. And so, you know, you'd have to talk to a professional in your area that specializes in copyright law or myself. And so that we can get, you know, more of a bigger picture. But, you know, ultimately, the elements are similar to that of a trademark infringement claim. In the, in the copyright infringement claim, you would have to show that you have a valid copyright and you have ownership of that copyright, um, that the, uh, the infringer has copied your original work or elements of it. It doesn't have to be like a direct word for word. It could, it could be paraphrased in some way or they take pieces of it and distribute it or, um, the third, element that you would have to show is that there's some type of substantial similarity between the infringing work and the copyrighted work that you have done. So those are the elements that you would need to prove in order to show that someone has infringed upon your copyright. And like I said before, if you still have questions, because this is goes a lot deeper than the surface level that I'm talking about. And it could be a little bit more complex. But if you have any specific questions for me, I am definitely open to having that discussion. So just go on to my website and book your 15 minute consultation and I can tailor my responses to your particular situation or your audience members, I should say, their particular situation. Someone say someone creates a logo for you of any or any form of artwork for your business. Do you have ownership of it or does the creator of the artwork have ownership of that? I'm so glad that you asked that. So the way that the law is written, the creator of the con of the the content is the owner of that creative work. So Mm -hmm. if you're like, 
I'm like, hey, Kyra, um, can you draw me a logo? I, I love the vibe selection that you have as yours. Can you draw me one, something like that, you know? Mm -hmm. And you're like, yeah, sure. And then you create it and you give it to me and for, for me to use in my business. You still own that. So I may have to pay you some type of royalties for that if something mm -hmm. happens and we have to go to court. Mm -hmm. But um, if upfront, I'm like, Hey, Kyra, um, I want you to create this logo for me. Um, we put it in a contract so you know that you're creating it for X business and X business owns everything from it. So if it's written in the contract, that's what's going to be used um, and, and what's favored over the, the federal law. If there's no contract in place, then federal law applies. But if there's a contract that says you and your business own it, then you and your business own it. Ah, so I know a lot of times for most podcasters, they get other people to create logos for them. They give them the idea, they mark up the the uh, rough draft, and then you give the say so on whether or not um, you want to actually take the the artwork. But I know a lot of times, in when you're searching for people to do artwork for you or create, uh, let's just say intro music or outro music for your show, a lot of them will say com for commercial use only. So if someone is saying for commercial use only and they're creating your artwork or they're doing the intro or outro music for your podcast, do does the person who created that still have full, uh, sole legal ownership of that, of that content or property? Or do you as a podcaster have um, the legal ownership of it? Yeah, so... If they're creating that music for you and there's no contract in place and they're saying it's for commercial use, that means that they can sell that same song to somebody else and mm -hmm. have that other person use it on their podcast, for example. Mm -hmm. So that's generally what the for the commercial purposes means. So you definitely want to make sure to have a contract in place that no, I want it exclusively for the vibe selection or, you know, exclusively for X, Y, and Z company. And, and that's what it is. So you make it just for me, you can't make it for anybody else. And then you should copyright it. Mm. Um, and then when you get it copyrighted, if he, sells it to somebody else, you may have a copyright infringement claim against him or her or the creator of it. I see. So say in a case where um, they've already created the artwork, you have it in your possession. Um, could you go back to the person and say, hey, um, I didn't know the legal ramification for it before, but it, I'm writing up this contract to see if I can get the full ownership of this artwork or of this intellect, whatever type of intellectual property it may be. Is that something that you can still go back and do? And how would you draft that up? Should that be done through an attorney or could you draft that up yourself? Yeah. So, I mean, you can write it on a napkin <laughs> if you wanted to, okay. um, but <laughs> yeah, if, if the, the content creator um, agrees to it, then I don't see why you wouldn't just say, um, you know, a short sentence that says, yeah, I created this artwork and I'm releasing all rights and ownership of it to X, Y, and Z for their exclusive use. And uh, you know, I waive all my legal rights to it and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, you could definitely go back to them and, and ask for that. 
wouldn't be um, something that I, I wouldn't oppose, you know? Yeah. yeah. If you ask them, I'm sure that some of them may be like, okay. And some of them may be like, uh, what do you mean? You know, mm-hmm. but saying, hey, gets- you know, I'm just trying to protect my business and my assets. Mm-hmm. And that's important. That's key. That's why I have you on today. And I hope a lot of people have taken a lot from this episode and learned a lot because I know I did. So my other question would be, um, how do you maintain your copyright and trademark? Because I know that you have to, I think for trademarks, you have to refile after 10 years just so that they know you're not abandoning the actual name. So is that is that true? What goes into the process of maintaining a trademark and a copyright? Yeah, look at you doing some due diligence there. <laughs> I got to. I got to know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. So I believe it's the first five years you file. And then after that, it would be the 10 year mark to, to make sure that your claim that your claim that your trademark registration is still active and live Mm. is the terminology that's used um so yeah you definitely just go in there but you have to put it in your own calendar the Mm. uspto is not going to send you a reminder saying hey you know you're coming up on your 10 year anniversary, it's time for you to make sure that your registration is current and live. So you make sure that as soon as you register for your trademark, you put it in your calendar, you write it down in in your business logbook, wherever you're gonna look and remember to do it, then you wanna make sure that you do it at that time or else you'll have to start the whole process all over again. Oh, man. And I and that's a long, tedious process. No one wants to relive the experience of that. So, yeah, everybody stay up to date. Like James says, mark it in your calendar, be proactive in it. And I want to thank you so much, Jamie, for joining me today. I know we're out of time here, but it's been a pleasure to have you on. Let everybody know where they can connect with you, your website, your social media handles. Where can they connect with you? Yeah, so I can always be reached on my website. It's it's Tetro T E T R E A U L T TetroLawGroup.com. And there you can get your free download that I was talking about earlier on um, how to make sure that your business is legit. So go ahead and make sure that you go on there and get that that free download. Also, you can find me on Facebook, uh, Jamie, J-A-I-M-E, Tetro, T-E-T-R-E-A-U-L-T. And uh, I'm also on Instagram at Tetro underscore law. Wonderful. Well, and for everybody else, you can follow me on Instagram at I am Kyra Mahoney. Or if you like to donate to the Vibe Selection podcast, you can do so at www.patreon.com slash Vibe Selection. Or if you like any Vibe Selection merch, you can get that at www.teespring.com slash Vibe Selection. I am your host, Kyra, and tune in for next week's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Stay safe. Stay healthy out there. Bye. Thank you for joining Vibe Selection with Kyra. Come vibe out with us again next time and hear the latest on today's hot topics. Find us on Instagram at I am Kyra Mahoney or donate at www.patreon.com/vibeselection.